0: Hello, I'm Ali Jones, and welcome to a brand new episode of Where Did It All Go Right? In this podcast, we hope to talk to lots of different people in creative jobs and find out how they got to do what they love. Now, you might want a career in a similar field, and if so, we want to inspire you. Or you might just want to hear about these jobs because you're interested, and that's totally fine. So, who's up next? Well, he's a sports commentator, TV presenter, and reporter. You will probably have seen him or heard him at a major sporting event, like the Rio Olympics or the Masters snooker. But how did Rob Walker get to do what he loves? So I was at university with my next guest, and I am very intrigued to find out how he went from that to where he is now. One of the most in-demand sports presenters. Let's not forget as well the voice of a question of sport. (laughs) Welcome, Rob Walker. A lovely house that you live in, in the middle of nowhere. This (laughs)
1: is my little haven when I get back from a trip there's nowhere I'd rather be than running in the lanes around my house or sitting in front of the fire with my wife and son this is this is my my little switch off but place. it is a
0: challenge to find it I'll be honest
1: well that's the idea
0: <laughs> but you love it as your haven and you've shown me already your incredible schedule on the wall this is amazing your your job really means that you are not at your sanctuary very much are you how, how many weeks did you work out that you were away this year
1: yeah, I was quite surprised, actually, when we looked at my wife's spreadsheet on the kitchen wall. She would started doing that because she got sick of having to wait for me to wake up somewhere to ask if we were available to go to such and such a birthday or whatever. <laughs> so now she's got it on the wall. But, yeah, I was quite surprised when we looked at that. This year, I'll have been away over 20 weeks. That's unusual. It would normally be somewhere between three and four months probably over five is is unusual but this has been an unusual year with just so many major events in so many different places it's it's been a busy one.
0: So when you got into this did you think that far ahead did you think I'm going to be away for weeks on end or did you just think this is what I want to do and if I go around the world fine?
1: I always knew that commentating on athletics was was what I wanted to do but that's such a specific Mm. aim I knew it would take me a long time to get there if I was to ever get there but my first job in TV was working in regional news as a sports reporter so I did a much more traditional type job where I travelled a little bit but it was within Devon and Cornwall (laughs) and I had a certain days off each week but it was very much you drive to the office you have a meeting in the morning about what story you're going to cover that afternoon or you do your prep for a story the following day I never ever thought about the travel That just developed as my career went on various tangents. And I do love the travel. All I would say is it isn't quite as glamorous as people think it is because when you're doing relentless amounts of travel and you're back to back to back and you're just home long enough to empty your bag for two days, pack it again, Mm. and you're trying to spend a little bit of time with your wife and son, it's a great job and it's everything I dreamt it would be. But you need very understanding family when you are away that much.
0: So you said that you always wanted to be a commentator. Yeah. Is that something like, really from a very, very young age? Yes. Can you remember? Yep.
1: I watched the Helsinki World Athletics Championships in 1983. It was the inaugural world champs. Carl Lewis won a number of golds. Steve Cram won the 15. Daly won the decathlon. A guy called Colin Reitz benefited from an American falling over on the last lap of the steeplechase. Oh, and you really got the do bronze. remember it. <laughs> and I, no one in my family was interested in athletics I had started to run a little bit at school. I mean, I was, what, seven or eight at the time. It just lit a fire in me. And then the following summer was the LA Olympics. And my mum let me get up late, having gone to bed, to watch Steve Cram and Seb Coe race the 1500 metres. Co defended the title and got the gold, and Steve Cram got the silver, having won the world title the previous year. It was a golden era for British athletics. Yeah. Daily won the decathlon. You had athletes like Shirley Strong winning, I think she got the silver in the women's 100 hurdles. Charlie Spedding got a medal in the men's marathon. Mick McLeod got a silver in the 10,000s. Wendy Sly got a silver in the women's 3,000 meters. That was an unbelievable era for British athletics. And I remember thinking straight after that, I said to mum and dad, one day I'm going to be the guy running the 1,500 meters in the Olympic stadium, or I'm going to be in the stadium talking about it. I mean, I wouldn't say from every single day from that point until the moment I did that race in Rio in 16, I wouldn't say it dominated every waking thought.
0: But you're and, obviously a very determined person to say that. I'm either going to run it or I'm going to commentate on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, you, you are what you are. And it took me a hell of a long time to get there. And like I said, you know, there were times on the journey where I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll be a regional sports reporter and I won't specifically be an athletics commentator. And I'm not just an athletics commentator because you have to be the very best like Steve Cram to make your living exclusively mm. from just doing athletics as a freelancer. So I do I do other stuff and I've worked with some amazing people on some amazing sports, but athletics was the acorn and from that, everything else oh, followed.
0: So, and, and at that age, did you even practice? So when you were watching the races, did you think, oh, I'm going to have a go at that and, and, and little you know, tape recorder in your bedroom?
1: N- no, because at that time, my burning desire was to run the 1500 for Great Britain. So every waking thought wasn't about being a broadcaster. It was about trying to get there as an athlete. Yeah. And then over a period of time, I you know, I was OK. It was one of the few things I was naturally good at. You know, I wasn't naturally academic. I loved reading and writing, but I wouldn't say I was brilliant at them at school, but I loved running and running was the only thing in which I used to win. And, and I loved the feeling of being in motion. And I still do. I mean, my knees are knackered these days, but I still get out. <laughs> I never feel more comfortable anywhere at any time than when I'm in a field with no, I don't run with a watch. I don't run with music. I don't set out with a specific route. I just go. Right. And I never feel more alive than when I'm doing that. I so no, when I was young, my idea was to try and make it as an athlete.
0: The running when you were younger then didn't transform into you being an an Olympic athlete. No. But but you went to uni and lots of things happened at uni that kind of got you into more down the media things.
1: Yeah, I did did English and drama and I loved it. You know, you and I both had a really good time at Exeter. It, It was, I never lost sight of how lucky I was to be at Exeter because I had received, and this is a kind of pattern that's followed me a little bit, I received a rejection letter from Exeter on the strength of my predicted grades because my mum and dad worked extremely hard to send me to a brilliant public school for which I was always grateful and I never took that opportunity for granted. I never felt guilty about that, but I never took it for granted. Anyway, on the strength of my predictions, Exeter rejected me and I knew it was the best place in the country to do English and drama. And then I managed to get three Bs instead of three Cs, but I rang them and I said, look, is there some kind of black mark against my name (laughs) if I'm applying for your course again? And their exact words were, we don't look down our nose at people we've previously rejected. If you want to try again, try again. Mm. Well, that was all the motivation I needed. So I did a year out, worked in a supermarket, did Eurorail with my best mate, Nick, and um, reapplied and got in. So the reason for mentioning that, I never lost sight of how lucky I was to be at Exeter because I'd been on the receiving end of a rejection letter. So, yeah, I did English and drama and... I love kids as well, I love working with children, I, like, I enjoy going into schools, I try and do that once I've balanced the dough for the year. But I would have been a primary school teacher if broadcasting hadn't worked out, that was my plan B. Right. Because there's just something so so energising and so innocent and so challenging about young kids. You and I both have kids, <laughs> they can be a pain, but they can be unbelievably enlightening. So at Exeter I enjoyed the acting, That i worked with some amazing people in that department, and I think over a period of time, I thought, well, OK, I, I need to re-establish these goals. I'm obviously not going to run the 15 in the Olympics. That's fine. Ran for uni team and loved it. But I thought, OK, you now need to get back to this number one goal. Yeah. Don't get sidetracked. Is it acting? No, of course it isn't. You know, <laughs> is it primary school teaching? Well, it might be if I'm not a good broadcaster. Let's have that as a backup option. And then I started writing sports articles for the evening paper. Do you remember the Express and Echo? I do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I started writing for the Express and Echo and really enjoyed that. The specific broadcasting goal got put on a shelf a little bit because I got involved with the Student Union. As you know, we called it the Student Guild. You have to explain it to the union because people are like, what the hell's a Student Guild? <laughs> and after you left, I was president for a year. And that was something I really, really wanted to do because I'd been a prefect at school, but I hadn't made head boy. And I was cool with that. But I was so passionate about Exeter partly as I mentioned earlier because I've been rejected by them and I had such an amazing time as you did and made brilliant friends as you did and I thought what a fantastic year this would be as a total one-off and it has turned out to be a complete one-off it's not how I make my living I'm not in management and that's my only experience of being in a role like that and making speeches and telling prospective students and their parents how amazing it was and
0: do you think doing that having that experience made a real difference to to the rest of your career. Do you think it really helped?
1: It was more a case that I had such a good time and and I viewed it as a real privilege to be in that spokesman role for the university. I loved it. But in terms of what did I learn from that, it absolutely crystallised for me that if you've got an idea and you think you might be able to do something, you've got to be ballsy and you've (laughs) got to have a go. Because there were people that came up to me after the election... Some people coming up to me saying, "Oh, I could have done that role." And I said, "Cool, I'm sure you could have done." But where were your balls when you had to stand up at the hustings, and where were your balls when you had to risk failing publicly? Because an election's quite weird, isn't it? Yeah. Not like an exam where you hope you go in getting an A. oh, you might get a B or a C. you but get no something one's out of see it.
0: what you've written.:
1: Well, not only that, you might not get an A, but you might get a B or a C. Mm. You're going to get something out of the experience. Mm. With an election. You either succeed 100% publicly or you fail 100% publicly. Mm. Now, all right, it's not the end of the world if you don't win. But I learned the lesson from that, that you have to be prepared to lose in order to get where you want to go. And that stuck with me and has remained with me ever since. You can't hold back and you've got to be ballsy and you've got to be big enough and ugly enough if something doesn't work to say, I failed, but at least I tried. You have the peace of mind. To me, that looks like a no-lose situation. Mm. You're much better off. What kind of dad do you want to be? And I remember you know, that was years before our son was born, and before, way before I even met my wife. But I remember thinking, what kind of dad do I want to be when I'm 50? I mean, geez, 50's <laughs> now not that far away, but when you you're were 20. Forward planning, yeah, you, when huh? you're 22, it's just <laughs> like, oh yeah, it's like 50 years away. But what kind of dad do you want to be? Do I want to be the kind of dad where my son might say to me one day, how come you weren't president, dad? And I might say, Well, because I didn't have the balls to go for it, or do I want to be the kind of dad who might say, I tried really hard to be president, son. I gave it a go and it wasn't meant to be. No-brainer to me.
0: And when you leave uni, you know, don't you? And you're like, I'm, I'm invincible. I'm at the top of my game yeah. almost. I'm going to do this. I'm going to conquer it. And that's yeah. maybe when you start getting a few rejection letters.
1: I'll tell you what. It's funny you say that about rejection letters. When I was coming to the end of that year as president, I wrote to the local TV station because I had 100% then. I felt right, I need to focus on now trying to pursue this broadcasting goal, and I wrote to West Country TV. I wrote to West Country instead of the local BBC because my gran lived near Tiverton in a little place called Uffculm. I used to go and visit gran once a week, and gran watched West Country, not the BBC. <laughs> so <laughs> I wrote to West proud. Country, <laughs> and I asked them for a week of work experience with a probably more than a whiff or two of arrogance at the time, partly because you're young, and partly because I was president at the time. They wrote back and said no. And I remember it was a really good wake-up call. It was a real slap in the face because I remember thinking, if I can't get a week's work experience at West Country TV, Mm -hmm. this journey, this seed that was sown in LA, is (laughs) going to fall at the first hurdle. (laughs) I thought, well, rather than getting the hump about it, I thought, right, well, maybe maybe I didn't put enough time into that letter. Maybe I didn't try hard enough. Maybe I came across a bit arrogant. So I sat down and wrote the letter again. I said, look, I fully respect your decision, but I wonder if you might reconsider because... I'm really keen for the following reasons I'd be really grateful, blah, blah, blah. Didn't hear for weeks. And I remember starting to think, what am I actually going to do here? Because this adrenaline rush of being the president and this four years extra is about to finish. (laughs) And I was just walking out the office one day and the phone rang. My landline rang. Well, we nobody had mobiles then. Thank God. Imagine the escapades we got up to at uni on Facebook. (laughs) Jeepers creepers. Anyway... The landline in the office rang and this woman said, hello, it's so-and-so from West Country TV. We've received your second letter and we've changed our minds. Do you want to come for a week's work experience?
0: So said, don't give up.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's the first one, right? I went for the week's work experience. It absolutely reiterated that, yes, broadcasting was where I wanted to be. I wasn't <coughs> thinking about becoming an athletics commentator every minute of the day, but <coughs> I thought, right, yeah, this is me. They said, we like people who do a postgrad in broadcast journalism. I said, okay, where do you go for that? (laughs) And they say, you can do Cardiff, you can, I think there was one in Preston, there's one in London, or we like people who go to Falmouth in Cornwall. And I love the West Country, I'm sure. I mean, it's just such a wonderful Mm. place to be. So that was a no brainer. So I got in touch with the guy who was leading the course and I asked him if I could come down for an interview. And he said, yeah, but you're probably too late for this year because your application needed to be in, in whatever it was, Mm -hmm. February. And this, this call from West Country only came right at the end of my year as president, so probably June, July. He said, come down and see me. And I did a little test thing. I had to pull an article out of the paper and write a 30-second voicer. I, I said to him, what's a, what's a voicer? What, what does that mean? He went, well, write a little story as if you're going to read it on the radio and then you've got 20 minutes, go. Did the story, he took me on the course but said, you'd have to come next year. I said, oh yeah, all right. I mean, I'd rather get on with it, but cool. And then one person didn't turn up that year on Falmouth and I got this phone call and said, can you be here tomorrow? And I said, yeah. I drove down, I had an ancient Sierra estate, packed my whole life up, having just got back from Exeter.
0: <laughs> Hi, mum and dad, yeah, i are yeah. going away again.
1: Did my year at Falmouth and West Country TV. I kept sort of sending tapes in. I mean, it's so funny now, isn't it? The world's so advanced. There Yay. were actual cassettes <laughs> that I sent in. In
0: a jiffy bag.
1: Of bits of broadcasting that I'd done for BBC Radio Cornwall, uh, covered rugby for Pirate FM. And I sent the tapes up. To West Country and West Country took me on, and that was my first job in TV, which I did for about eighteen months as a regional sports reporter.
0: So you were in, you were in. Doing I was, sports. yeah, you got because
1: there. yeah, because I was quite lucky that I was taken on. I finished the course on the Friday. I think I had a day off to go on the lash for graduation <laughs> later that summer. But I did the course and got straight in to TV as a sports reporter. So I had worked hard for that. But I was lucky as well, yeah. and I'll never deny that I had a stroke of luck to open those doors.
0: Lucky, but also very tenacious, just battling on all the time. Yeah,
1: well, you can't, you know, you, the world doesn't owe you anything. I mean, if I can drum that into myself, you know, obviously I'm going to try and open as many doors as I can for Arthur, whatever he wants to do for a living. That's my number one goal now after Rio. But the world doesn't owe you anything. Doesn't matter whether you went to a public school, doesn't matter if your parents have got a few quid, the world owes you nothing. There's a lot of jobs you can get out there but you're going to have to want it and you're going to take a few slaps in the face. Um, But funny, you say about the rejection letters, right? So my second one, people think I made this up, but I didn't. I did a year and a half at West Country. Then I did a year and a half at another ITV region in Bristol, covering Bristol, Bath and Gloucester rugby. Went on a Lions tour. That was the first big tour I did, which was amazing. So grateful for that opportunity, even now, all the different places I've been. And then I got to the end of my second job. So I did 18 months at West Country. I did 18 months at HTV West. Great year and a half living in Clifton, especially being single as well. I mean, mm. God, it was amazing. <laughs> I think if I'd met a woman in Bristol, I never would have left. It's a great city. <laughs> Anyhow, there was a job came up at BBC Sport. And the reason for harping on about it, I went up to London for the interview at BBC Sport Television Centre. It was quite an you know, an intimidating place to go from regional TV. And then the following week, I thought I'd done all right. I as you would know, in our industry, we don't really do job... I've probably been interviewed three times in my yeah, entire life. It's kind of just
0: talking to you people. You don't really
1: yeah. do interviews. They call it a board at the BBC. They try and make it sound even more scary than it already <laughs> is. Like you, massive oak table <laughs> yeah. with three guys on the other side of it, and you're absolutely and you bricking something. it. I got a thanks but no thanks letter, and this is absolute... God's honest truth, and I say this when I go to schools, and I say this when I go and speak at businesses. Always, always, always ask for feedback and don't lose your rag. Don't let your ego allow you to think that they've missed out. Because what happened was I rang them up and I said, "Okay, look, I'm not ringing up to moan. That's fine. It is what it is. I knew that that was my best path into becoming an athletics commentator. I knew that because they have have, all the rights. So you must
0: have felt gutted.
1: Oh, I was devastated. I thought I'd done all right in the interview. Anyway, I rang them up. I asked for feedback. And the long story short is they'd sent me the wrong letter. They said, we'll have to ring you back in a minute. We'll get in touch with HR. And then the woman...
0: What, you'd got the job?
1: yeah I had got the job but they sent me the wrong letter so what
0: would have happened if you hadn't rung up
1: I don't know because the guy who interviewed me Michael Cole has gone on to be a really good friend of mine he's given me tons of work as as a freelancer he was on the board and he and I to this day when we have a beer on an event we have a debate as to whether (laughs) would anybody have noticed on the day when whoever it was started that it wasn't the tall skinny guy with the big nose would they have then contacted me or would I have never known and I would have never had the job (gasps) So I have, my, my mum and dad have kept them, I have two letters at home, a Thursday in November 01, thanks very much for applying Mr Walker, you haven't got the job, best of luck in life. Yeah. And the next letter is dated the Friday. Mr. Walker, we're delighted that you did such a good board. You've got the job. We'll see you in a month's time. Salary is X, Y and Z.
0: What happened on the Thursday afternoon? What was going on there in the office?
1: Oh, I don't know. I went for breakfast. My mum and dad have been absolutely instrumental in everything I've done. And they've got nothing to do with broadcasting. They ran a small business for many years. And dad said, we're coming to Bristol. Let's go out for a breakfast. And my mobile rang because the call to say we made a mistake was over a day. (laughs) So I got this call, and dad was like, Look, you know what dads are like. It's not the end of the world. And then I said, Oh, I better answer this phone call. And it was the woman ringing me back. And dad was like, Okay, I'm confused. Have you got the job or not? (laughs) Knowing me and my dad, we probably went on the lash that afternoon, but I can't remember, which means we obviously did. Um, Always, always, always ring for feedback.
0: I'm feeling quite stressed after that. That's just like, that's so close. And Mm. and, and then, so you got onto the BBC, and do you think that was really important in, in your route to becoming a commentator because you sort of met lots of people who could help you
1: yes yes it was although it was a big gamble because where i had been working i was commentating on football for itv regions and itv were brilliant to me oh. i learned so much in that three years the job i took was an assistant producer now i had no idea what that meant i mean if people are listening thinking, what the hell does that mean <laughs> well the assistant producers say if it's rugby is the guy who goes along with Jeremy Guscott and liaises with the cameraman and decides that the interview with Eddie Jones should be in this corner. And Jerry asks the questions and you're listening to the questions and you might say, oh, is there any chance we could ask about Farrell? Is there any chance we could ask about the injury to so-and-so? And And then you go back with a picture editor and cut it all together. So you're not the guy commentating and you're not the guy asking the questions. Mm. You're you're kind of like a liaison bloke.
0: So you weren't quite doing what you wanted to do? No,
1: but I knew that my only chance of working on athletics was going to be to get in the faces of all the key decision-makers. I knew it was a massive sideways step. And for the first year I was there, I made a decision I wouldn't even mention about broadcasting because they paid me. And it was a fairly decent pay rise at the time, as I recall.
0: You kind of have to lie low, don't you? Don't? Yeah. You, you, you sort of don't want to... It's annoying when people come in and say, well, I actually don't want to be doing this job. Yeah.
1: So for the that first year, people. I worked my proverbials off. I <clears> had <throat> no woman at the time either, so I could say yes to everything, and I had no family to look after. So whenever they rang me and said, oh, so-and-so can't do this, can you now go and do this, even though you're on two days off? I always said yes.
0: <clears throat> so you're doing not, not quite what you're doing, but you're working really hard, and then you're kind of eking your way into commentating.
1: Well, I tried, yeah. but it wasn't happening at the BBC.
0: <laughs> so so how? So what did you do? Did you decide to make a decision to leave that staff job and, and just go freelance? Yes. Yeah.
1: But that's, that's a gamble. Yeah, of course it was. But again, who do you want to be? Do you want to be a guy doing an assistant producer's job that loads of people, great job, loads of people, for them, that's their life's yeah. ambition and that's brilliant and that's what they want to do and they're creative and they want to make pieces and work with great broadcasters and, and all that. Do you want to be stuck doing that, hating it? Mm. Or do you want to get off your backside and put your money where your mouth is and go out into the big bad world? No brainer. I thought, right, Okay. the worst, worst, worst case scenario here is that I'm absolutely crap and I'll go and be a primary school teacher. (laughs) The second case scenario, I really struggle for money and I have to sell the flat. But that process, I worked for the BBC for three and a half years. I did manage to manoeuvre my way onto various athletics projects because it wasn't a huge budget sport. And I did show many times that I had some potential as a reporter. Anyway, the long and the short of it is, I realised that I was being paid to do X and that was the job they wanted me to do. And if I wanted to do Y, I was going to have to be ballsy and bugger off and do it on my own. Yeah. So that's what I did.
0: So do you remember your first freelance job?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is this is bizarre. I made great friends at the BBC. I'm very grateful for what I learned there. So I left, I left on good terms. And do you know the strangest thing? The first freelance gig I did was for the BBC. They <laughs> rang me up about a week after I left the staff job and said, we need someone to go to Durban to cover the World Disabled Swimming Championships. Can you do a few voices for Five Live? Can you write the script, do the voice yourself and come back? And I thought, that's the very reason I left, of course. Yeah. And I remember it was never about the money. It was never about the dough. But that week, I earned more than a month's wages in my, what I would have had for the previous three years. And it went from there.
0: I'm interested in, because a lot of your work that you do, you do work in some sports that are, I'd say more, less popular than mainstream sports. Was that something that you decided to do? You know, become a bit of an expert in sports that people are really interested in, but might not be their first choice sport? Um, Not
1: really. Bearing in mind the first commentary I ever did was on football. But I did recognise very early on that because football is so huge and so popular, I think generally, if you're going to make it as a football commentator, you just do football. Right. And because my whole modus operandum was about getting to athletics I thought well that isn't going to be for me I might not have been that good anyway but I need to do whatever I need to do to to make my living over, over a 12 month period Athletics is the ideal. And then what other stuff am I interested in? And that's around. And I, I love rugby. I love boxing and I love the Olympic Games. But yeah, in terms of, you know, I kind of fell into snooker as the MC and I've been doing that since 2007. It was all about I looked at how the industry works and I thought my goal is athletics. So I need to try and get a schedule together. I'll work on anything as long as it gives me the chance to work on athletics.
0: How did you get those gigs?
1: Well, it was people knowing I had an interest. The best guy I've ever worked with in TV is called Jim Bentley. He's from, from Uddersfield. Oh, Jimmy. He is so on TV, it's unbelievable. And he's one of, the, one of the most talented producers and programme editors you could ever work with. I mean, when you're live, Jimmy's going, oh, come on, Rob, wrap it up. I'm not not interested in this. I can't say the specific words that he uses. But in your ear is a hail of expletives because he trusts you to just get on with it. Jim knew that I really, really liked boxing, so he was doing boxing for Satanta. So I did ringside boxing interviews for Jim on Joe Kauzagi fights. Went to Vegas once. That was amazing. Did Kauzagi against Kessler at the Millennium Stadium in November 2007. 50,000 people there. Went the distance and it was a, a brilliant fight. So it was like that. If people knew I had a genuine interest in something and they thought I was reasonable, they'd give me a ring. But with something like snooker... It completely came out of nowhere. Well,
0: go on, tell us about that. So how did you fall into it, as you say?
1: Right, it was very simple. Snooker had this long-term MC called Alan Hughes. He's a real legend of the sport. He retired and a bloke called Richard Bear took over. I used to watch snooker when I was a kid. And then I kind of drifted away from snooker. And I hadn't watched it for years. I vaguely knew who Sean Murphy was because he'd come out of nowhere and won the world title as a qualifier in 05. Anyway, this guy, Richard Baer, I think he suddenly had a problem where he couldn't do an event at short notice. And World Snooker rang the BBC and said, we need to find someone who can commit to the three big BBC events. They said, we need someone who's a bit ballsy, has got quite a loud voice <laughs> and can work with, with a live audience. Another really good guy who's been good to me over the years, Ron Chakraborty. And Ron said, ring Rob Walker. So I got this phone call one day saying, hi, do you want to come and be the MC on this snooker event? And I said, yeah, cool. I don't even know what that role means. What, am I on TV or am I just like telling jokes and warming people up? What is it? Turned up at Telford, December 2007, and I saw these cameras everywhere. I thought, this is on TV. Ah, uh, okay. I thought, oh, expletive. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you've got to say yes sometimes. And the other, probably the biggest time that happened to me was when, An amazing bloke called Martin Webster, who sadly passed away from motor neurone disease. Martin was one of the big exec producers at the BBC for many, many years. And he said to me in the spring of 08, before the Beijing Olympics, do you know anything about sailing? And I said, Martin, you know I'll do anything for you. But I said, what I know about sailing can be written on the back of a stamp. But what do you need me to know and by when? And he said, I want you to be the live on the water reporter for the Olympic Games because we have a big problem with sailing that Britain are likely to get a lot of medals, but it's very hard to understand and it's very hard to follow. So I specifically want someone who doesn't know much about sailing, who won't get bogged down in jargon and And bring it to life.
0: Who doesn't get sick because I was watching that and I was feeling sick just watching the boat going up. Yeah, it's
1: funny that because Webby said to me, do you get seasick? And I said, I don't know, really. (laughs) <laughs> and, and do you know what? I don't.
0: Well, you're lucky. That was just luck. That was complete luck. So, yeah, look,
1: for youngsters coming into the industry, there is no right way, there is your way. But you've got to be prepared to try things that might not go very well. Mm. Now, there is a caveat to that. You've got to be pretty sure you can do it. Right. Because when it goes pear shaped on TV, it's horrendous.
0: I'm interested as well because keeping jobs, so the snooker, you know, they keep calling you back. Yeah. Do you think by giving the nicknames to the snooker players, inventing phrases like, let's get the boys on oh, the basement? Oh yeah, I mean,
1: I sort of cringe with that now. because <laughs> oh, do you? Um, Yeah, I mean, look, the, the primary thing is you, you've got to be easy to work with. You cannot be a diva. <laughs> I think you'd have to be at least, at least 33% better than the next best person mm. to get away with being an ARSE. Yeah. Some people do get away with that. But you have to be so much better than everybody else. Because the producers, they want someone who's going to turn up, be up for it, get involved and get the job done. Right. So you just can't afford to be like that. There are still some who are like that. But I've always tried to be as easy as possible to work with. I mean, yeah, look, I'm naturally, I'm lucky. I was born with a fairly sunny disposition and I'm up for life and I know how lucky I am. I don't walk down the stairs every day in my pants going, yeah, I rule. <laughs> but... I never, ever lose sight of the fact that a lot of people work a lot harder for a lot less Mm. doing something they don't like. And any broadcaster worth his or her salt needs to remember that. Mm. And some choose not to. That's unforgivable.
0: I must talk to you about the Olympics and the Paralympics. When you're commentating on a really short race, like 100 metres, how on earth do you do that when you have 10 seconds or so?
1: The hardest research I do is when I'm commentating. I still do some bits of presenting, not loads. And if I never appeared in front of a camera again, it wouldn't bother me. The work I love. I'm grateful for the bits of presenting I do, but the reason I'm in this game was to become a commentator. The out-and-out expert on a broadcast is the commentator and the pundit who's sitting next to the presenter. By and large, the pundit will be a former athlete who can do most of it off the top of their head with a little bit of research. The person who needs to know everything and do a biblical amount of prep is the commentator. So, There is absolutely no shortcut. But when you've done the prep, whether you use that information or not doesn't matter. The fact is you are talking with real confidence because if something surprising happens, you're not afraid to say, wow, well, that's surprising, isn't it? Because we haven't seen a performance like that from him all season. The best we've seen is probably 10.1. Nobody was expecting a 9.92. But you need to know that when you say something is surprising, If it's surprising you, it is going to be a surprise for 99% of the other people watching. So the prep is of paramount, paramount importance. Mm.
0: Those periods of time that you're commentating, for some of them, they're such a short period of time. The pressure must be pretty intense.
1: Don't get me wrong, I love the sprints, but I have to concentrate really hard. And it helps if you're in direct line of sight with the finish. If you're ever so slightly off five Mm -hmm. metres either side, it's amazing what your eyes are touch with. Your eyes are pretty good. When you're watching three people cross a line quite quickly and you've been watching athletics for many years as a fan, you have a reasonably good chance of being able to say that's the one, two, three or that's the one, two and we'll mop up third shortly. Something like that. It's not rocket science. It's not impossible. It's something you've watched your whole life. And then it's just your turn to be the voice trying to bring it to life. So you just get on with it.
0: For you, what was the most difficult thing to commentate on, do you think?
1: I think in terms of something that was a total shock, and it's one of the most memorable things I've ever seen, but not necessarily in a good way, was the Commonwealth Games this year uh, on the Gold Coast. I was commentating on the World Feed, so for people who don't know what that means, the BBC commentary on the men's marathon at the Commonwealth Games would have been Steve Cram. He would have been in what's called the International Broadcast Centre. I was on air at the finish line of the marathon, and the World Feed simply means that there are many, many countries around the world who need English-speaking commentary, but they either haven't got commentators with the expertise or they haven't got the budget. So the organisers of the event get an English-speaking commentator and that goes out all over the world, hence the name The World Feed. So the commentary goes out all over the Caribbean, the English-speaking countries in Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Anyway, so I was doing The World Feed commentary on the men's marathon and Callum Hawkins is a fantastic young athlete. He's a brilliant marathon runner and he was bidding to become... I'm pretty sure now, looking back, without checking my notes, he would have been the first Scot to win the Commonwealth Marathon in over 50 years. And he was running brilliantly. Mm. It was very, very hot. But when you looked at his PBs over the marathon, he was running very conservatively. So I thought, this is great. He's allowed for the fact that it's very hot. He was in the lead over Mike Shelley, who was the defending champion from Australia, by nearly two minutes. And he just wobbled and hit the wall. And it was spectacular. I've never seen anything like it in a marathon. He he wobbled towards the curb, threw his hat off, bearing in mind up until this point he looked imperious. He was about to win the race Mm. and it would have been a fantastic victory. Anyway, the heat got the better of him. He collapsed and then desperately tried to get off the floor. It was one of the most compelling heart-wrenching sporting moments i've ever seen and i really really hope he recovers from that and goes on to be a champion strange things happen sometimes in sport and you, and you have to be well prepared and you have to react to what you see yeah.
0: what, what for you has been sort of maybe a moment of commentary or a moment where you've been doing some work and you just thought i cannot believe i am here this is where it's all come together
1: one moment Rio 16, 1500 metres, men's. London was great. I did the sailing again and and I got to interview Ben Ainsley live when he'd just become the greatest sailor in history. But no, listen, it all goes back to the 1500 in in, in 83, watching Crammy and and then watching Crammy and Co in 84. And then Rio was my turn to commentate on the Olympics. And the broadcasting arm of the International Olympic Committee is called the Olympic Broadcasting Service, OBS. And OBS rang me and said, we want you to be the world feed athletics commentator. So I had to ring the beeb and say, Look, thanks very much for the offer of the sailing again for Rio. Yeah. But this is my mountain top. I did the athletics in Rio. There were two of us, as a brilliant Australian broadcaster, and he did half the track races and I did half the track races. And that was the mountain top. I mean I commentated on the women's ten thousand metre final where Almaz Ayana, the Ethiopian, smashed the world record on the very first morning and I thought, Oh my god, this is nuts. <laughs> I've just commentated on an Olympic gold medal and a world record and not, not only once but twice because then Wade Van Nieker broke the world record in lane 8 and beat the defending champion Karani James and LaShawn Merritt, the American probably the greatest 400 metre race in history that Games as a whole was the culmination and the climax of decades of work but a real mountaintop on the last night men's 15 it was so weird because in the moment of doing it I recognised the magnitude of what I was doing my dad noticed but nobody else would have done. But my voice was cracking when I said, and now the final of the men's 1500 metres. And I almost started crying. I can feel myself going now, just getting a bit emotional thinking about it. But yeah, we came off air and I said to them, right, you old guys go to the bus. I walked really quickly. I said, I'll catch you up. I'm just going to sit here for a minute. And I took my headset off and the stadium was pretty empty. And I remember just thinking, that's it. That's it. This, This is the culmination of decades of work, great help from from a certain number of people and a little bit of ability, hopefully. And I thought, if I die tomorrow, I've done it. And I was, what was it, two years ago now, I was 41 at the time and and I thought, there is no other piece of work for any amount of money anywhere in the world that anybody could offer me that would supersede this experience. I've done it. And then I sat there and I thought, right, what am I supposed to do now everything's been about this and I've done it yeah what the hell do I do now and I thought well this is pretty simple my goal now my number one ambition is to open as many doors for my son as possible so that one day and this I was thinking in the stadium as I sat there I want my son to one day feel a moment of satisfaction about his job as I've done about mine
0: yeah well, I'm sure that you're going to do it because you seem seen to everything that you, you put your mind to, you've done it. You know, even those rejections, it's, it's the balls. It's having the balls, isn't it, to do it and, and be determined. But also you talk about your parents and all the support they've given you as well because it's, it's having that backup, isn't it?
1: There's two really big cards that life can deal you. One is a loving, supporting home environment. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to have a lot of money in that home. It just needs to be supportive. A loving mum and dad... Who can give you that confidence and that platform and that belief is of paramount importance. And I don't think you truly realize the benefit of that until you grow up and you see the results of scenarios where people haven't had that. And also when you then get married and have kids and you realize how knackering it is and <laughs> you, your love is unconditional, but your patience isn't. And you realize how much patience your parents <laughs> showed to you. And the other one is your education. And, you know, I touched on this earlier. Mum and dad didn't come from a particularly wealthy back, well, they both grew up on council estates, but they only had me and they decided that they would plow all their money into my education. So I went to a very good primary school, I went to a very good public school, I went to a really good university and they ensured I had all those experiences and never came out with a penny of debt. Well, if life deals you those cards, the education and the family, you almost owe it to everybody out there who didn't have those two cards to bloody well make the most of it Mm -hmm. and never forget how lucky you were that you were on that start line already one step ahead
0: if we kind of think back to the sort of where did it all go right for you there's quite a few factors aren't there the two lucky cards that you talk about yeah having grits and determination though that's massive and, and sort of not taking no for an answer
1: yes i i am a very i guess well you don't really stop and think about this stuff that often but i am incredibly driven if i have a goal I will move heaven and earth. And I've never trodden on anyone to try and get there. I would never do that. But if I I get an idea in my head and I think I might be good enough to do something, I will leave no stone unturned in my quest to try and make it happen. And it will either happen or I'll give it everything Mm. and be ballsy enough and honest enough to turn around and say I wasn't good enough. There's no point in regretting the things you haven't done you should I'm I'm not talking about in the case of a crime other than a crime you should always only ever regret what you have done yeah because then you're not left wondering what if
0: wise words really wise and that's what you'd say to anybody who kind of wants to get into this game
1: there's no better way of making your living but Mm. people have to realize young people have to realize there's nothing special about people who make their living in tv I'm one of them and I'm nothing special and I'm no brains of Britain (laughs) but you have to want it
0: so what's next for you then
1: got my usual snooker stuff in the spring and then i think i'm going to the special olympics which i've never done before i mean some of the coolest things i've had the opportunity to do have been in with relation to the paralympics yes. disability athletics is, is fantastic and i, I and go did th- the invictus yes invictus yeah. was amazing that was a really really good event i've done two of those now i did toronto last year and sydney this year so yeah next year the biggest event next year will be the world athletics championships in doha at the end of september and then i should in theory be working on the ipc the disabled athletics world champs in dubai in the november uh, looks like I'm going to be doing a voiceover role on the Rugby World Cup in the autumn. And then what else am I doing? Um London, enough. Yeah, London Marathon. And <laughs> oh, I'll be working in India a couple of times on some distance races. So yeah. Touchwood 19 looks good.
0: It's been inspiring, Rob. <laughs> Brilliant story. Thank you so much for talking to me and, and inspiring other people, I'm sure, as well.
1: Well, that's all right. It's, it's been my pleasure. You know, it's nice if youngsters especially can take one or two little bits of information from from my crazy 19 years. <laughs> Hopefully they can go on and... Be doing the same thing in 20 years' time for someone else.
0: Of course. Lovely. Thank you so much, Rob. Don't forget to subscribe to Where Did It All Go Right on iTunes and Podbean. And if you give us a rating, even better. You can follow us on Twitter too at Where Go Right and find out about all the new guests coming our way. And we'll be back with a brand new episode next week.